One of the themes that we have seen throughout Isaiah is Israel's failure. From the very beginning of the book, one of the points that is stressed in Isaiah is that Israel has been called to this unique role to declare God's glory to the nations, to be a light, and yet they fail, and they fail repeatedly. And so we saw back in, all the way back in chapter 1, I'm just going to read from chapter 1, verse 4, God has described them as children that he has reared, that he has nurtured, that he has loved, and yet they have rebelled against him. And chapter 1, verse 4 says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden, overwhelmed with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The Jewish people were to be Yahweh's servants, uniquely set apart and chosen for this opportunity to reflect his glory to the nations that neighbored them. And not only did they fail, but to make matters worse, it's not just a missed opportunity. It's actually they, they replaced the worship of God with the worship of idols. They, they turn to carved images and they give their praise and glory to that which is man-made. And they betray the living God. And so we've seen Isaiah deliver God's judgment on them, his warning of punishment, the exile in Babylon that is coming as part of that punishment. We are in the last section of Isaiah, that which begins in Isaiah chapter 40. And we've seen a couple of themes start to unfold with chapter 40. One of them is sort of the courtroom drama that is played out in these closing chapters. It is God summoning the idols and the idol makers and the idol worshipers, and he is calling them into his presence to sort of expose them, to, to show that they are not gods, that the false gods that they represent have nothing, that they are worthless. And so he's, he's essentially calling these idol makers and worshipers to account. Is there anything that you would compare to me? Can they do anything like I do? And of course, the answer is no. Another theme, though, that begins to dominate the last half of Isaiah, and it's hinted at in chapter 40, and we're going to see it more this morning in chapter 42, is this hope of future deliverance through a coming servant. The, the servant comes on the scene in Isaiah 42, but he is, he is hinted at in chapter 40 because in chapter 40 there's the, the mention of one who will prepare the way for this one who comes, this one who will go before and declare that this servant is coming, and this servant will be central to God's redemption of his people. Now, when we left off a couple weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 41, we saw God confronting very specifically the, the idols and the idol makers and, and declaring their evil, their worthlessness. But at the end of Isaiah 41, twice in this sort of courtroom setting, God says, look, Behold, he uses this language to, to turn the attention of the courtroom observers, and he is making a, a spectacle, if you will, of the idols and the idol makers, and he is saying, look, these are worthless. These, these do nothing for you. Your, your gods are no god at all. Look at them. See them. And that sets us up for the very start of chapter 42, which again begins with this command to look. Isaiah 42, verse 1, look, behold... My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Behold, my servant, look at him. 
Now, this phrase, my servant, is not new in Isaiah. In fact, this is now the fifth time that he has said, my servant. And everyone previous has been a different person. And none of them are this one here, this particular servant in Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 20, he speaks of Isaiah, my servant, the prophet himself. In chapter 22, it's one of King Hezekiah's officials in his court that he refers to as my servant. He talks of David as my servant in chapter 37. And then we saw it actually back in chapter 41, and we'll see it again later on in in chapter 43 and beyond, where the reference to my servant is to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 41, 9, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. What's unique about the servant in chapter 42 is he's not named. All of them come with an identifier, a name of some sort, not this one. This is simply, behold my servant. So already, there's something unique about this servant. This is not an individual that that Isaiah's audience immediately knows by name or can point to in some way. But what Isaiah then does, what God does through Isaiah, is he gives this description of the servant. He describes more about this servant. That's what I want us to look at this morning in chapter 42, is just building out this description of this servant who they are being introduced to, and and then draw a couple of lessons out of that that come from this passage. I'm going to point out at least six things here uh, that we're going to see about the servant, and they start here in chapter 42. Let me read again verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 4. Behold, look, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law." Isaiah is beginning this description of a servant who I would suggest to you is this ideal servant. This one is different from all that have come before. This one is ideal, and in fact, the first piece of the description is that he is chosen, sustained, and equipped by God. He is uniquely chosen and upheld by God and given his spirit for service. Right away, we see this unique relationship. He is God's chosen. God delights in him. And when it speaks of the soul delighting in this one, uh, in, in, in verse one, it's using the same kind of language that we often find in the er, earlier in the Old Testament when it speaks of sacrifices that are acceptable to God. He is pleased with them. He delights in them. And so he's using that language here to speak of his delight in this servant. You can think ahead, if you will, Isaiah's readers weren't ready yet to do this, but we can think ahead to Matthew 3 and hear similar language echoed at the baptism of Jesus Christ, right? When the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we're seeing already the uniqueness of this relationship, empowered by God's spirit to serve, equipped for service. And that leads us right into the the second part of the description here that starts in verse 1 and is picked up again down in verse 4. It is the faithfulness of the servant. He will do all that he is sent to do by God. All of the other servants, Israel, David, Isaiah, all fail. We fail in obeying God perfectly. But this servant 
This one in whom God delights will be faithful. He will accomplish all that is the Father's will. He will do all that he is given to do. Jesus taught this to us in Matthew 24, 46, when he speaks of the wise servant as being the one, the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. God's ideal servant will be perfectly faithful, and that is who this one is. He will do what God sends him to do. He will accomplish it all. And the task of that, the chief task that he has given, this is the third description in this passage, is to bring justice to the nations. You and I know this is a mammoth task. The notion that one would bring justice, not to an isolated place, not to a city, but to the nations. In fact, three times in these four verses, he emphasizes this point, justice to the nations, justice in the earth. He will faithfully bring forth justice. History is is filled with accounts of corrupted justice and oppression and rights denied and innocent people harmed by those who are in power and even by attempts by leaders to bring justice, to enforce justice in some way, legislative attempts to bring about justice. We've seen it over and over again, and yet in every era, in every nation, there is injustice. It goes on constantly. This servant will bring justice to the earth. That Hebrew word for justice certainly has the idea of of court rulings, of, of judicial decisions, but it also describes just the the preservation of order within a society, how rulers govern so that society is handled in an orderly and equitable way. In ancient times, there weren't the the clear lines between branches of government, you know, judicial and legislative and executive. It was just the ruler and the ruler and his administration, and they governed with elders, and, 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 and that ruler was responsible. There wasn't the divisions between sort of civil and criminal justice. Justice was simply rulers addressing the people's concerns in a way that was, was without partiality. That's what justice was to be. We all know that, that desire to, to have impartial treatment, to be treated in a fair way, but sin degrades that. In our day, we can, we can scarcely agree on a definition of justice, much less expect to, to see it. Oppression, power, exploitation, bias, all of that gets in the way, and, and all of that replaces what is God's design for justice. But it says here that when the servant comes, he, he will not simply teach lessons on justice He will not sort of cajole people into, you ought to be just. It'd be a really better world if we could all just experience justice. He won't even force justice. It simply says he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will accomplish it in the earth. This servant is a ruler whose rule will establish perfect justice. I would suggest to you, and I I think you'd agree with me, we talked about Hmm, it was a long time ago, back in the spring, when we talked about end times sort of elements in, in the book of Isaiah. I think we're still looking forward to something when the rule of Christ comes and this justice is experienced throughout all of the earth. But, but this is clearly what he is looking toward, that this servant will bring justice throughout God's creation. The interesting thing here on, on this topic is just how he does so, how he establishes justice, how he rules. You see it in verses 2 and 3, not crying aloud, lifting his voice, a bruised reed he will not break, faintly burning wick he will not quench. There is something here about the servant's humility and his grace. He will not, he will not 
oppress those who are weak. He will not take advantage of those who are poor. He will not impose his will by force. He is a servant who will simply bring that justice to bear. He will not even just legislate it. This servant will do so. Now, now we should understand, we read this, this, this gentleness, this humility, this is still the Lord's servant. He still comes in the power of Yahweh's spirit, and there are still enemies of God. There are those who are violent oppressors. There are those who hate justice, those who thrive on power and injustice. And so the, the servant's in, uh, humility and his grace does not mean that in some way God will coddle evil. And, and we get that if we just drop down a little bit later in the chapter. If you look at uh, verse 13, the, the, the subject sort of shifts, but, but look at 13 through 17 and be reminded again about God and his hatred of sin. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. Fear not. I'm reading out of chapter 41. I'm sorry, I've got the right verses in my notes, and I'm trying to see how many of you are going to catch it and go, what is he reading? How about this, verse 13? The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know and paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. You must not mistake the gentleness of the Lord's servant with weakness. God does not go easy on those who persist in evil. There remains judgment for them. There remains punishment for those who oppose to God. And Isaiah's courtroom drama is also showing to us that the sovereign king of the universe will prevail and we should know that his servant will follow in that same character. He will, with those who are weak and humble, he will be gentle and he will uphold them and he will strengthen them and care for them. He will also oppose strongly those who oppose God's justice. He will zealously bring about God's justice. Fourth description, God, God's ideal servant is sustained, chosen, and empowered. He's faithful, he brings justice to the earth, and fourth, he will endure and persevere. This is back in verse four where it says he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. To the very point that I was just making, establishing Justice in the earth will not come without opposition. It will not be embraced by all. There will be those who hate the servant, but the language here says he will endure. He will persevere. In fact, verse 4, the Hebrew language is very much a play on verse 3. In, in, in verse 4, when it says that he will not grow faint or be discouraged, that word discouraged has the same Hebrew root word as bruised in verse 3. Those, those words Connect, And so the idea of one being bruised or crushed, there are bruised reeds, and the servant will face opposition that would, would want to crush him, would want to harm him, but they will not succeed. He will not be crushed. In the same way, verse 3, that Hebrew word for, for quench, 
a fair, uh, faintly burning wick he will not quench. Very similar Hebrew word to the one in verse 4 for grow faint. Both words speak of a light being put out. So what it's saying is not only in his gentleness will he not dim the light of those who are already faint, but he himself will not be dimmed. Despite whatever opposition he faces, he will establish justice, verse 4 says. All right, let me read on verses 5 through 7 of Isaiah 42. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. There's a shift as you're reading this. Now, when you come to verse 5, God now addresses his servant. So the speaker is now identified as the maker of heaven and earth, as the creator, the one who stretched out the universe, the one who gives life and breath to all who live and breathe, the one who is the sovereign creator of the universe and who sustains them by his power. This particular imagery that that God uses of himself in verse 5 as maker of heaven and earth should bring us back to creation, right? Should help us to to think back to to God and his creation. But I I think it's it's also meant to remind us of something that, that the servant will come to meet, and that is that the creator's work, the pinnacle of the creator's work, man, has fallen. That the one who stretches out the heavens and the earth and who breathes life and breath, that man has rebelled against him. Man is in need of rescue. Man, the the joy and delight of God's creation has plunged headlong into sin. And with that has come all of the perversity and distortions and corruption of sin that has spread throughout creation. As Romans says, all of it is subject to futility on account of man's sin. Because of man's sin against his creator, man is lost And he is in darkness, and he is in prison because of his sin. He is in a spiritual state of separation from his creator, and he is in need of redemption. And so Isaiah, he's giving us God's word here, is taking us back to creation to also remind us of fall, that man has fallen into sin. And so while it's crucial that the servant bring justice to the earth, what's even More important, what's even a greater need is God's servant must bring light into the darkness. God's servant must must make the blind to see. He's got to release those who are imprisoned by their sin. He must free them so that they can now embrace truth, so that they can now relate to their creator. God's servant must do a work of redemption. And so this leads us to the fifth description of the ideal servant. He will be a covenant, is the language that's used here, a covenant who reverses the curse of sin. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. We use covenant language sometimes at weddings. Covenants as legal terminology. When we understand 
biblically the language of covenants, what we understand is that, that there are these sort of agreements that are propositioned between God and man, and that what always happens in biblical covenants is man fails. Man may, may pledge himself to covenants, to the Mosaic covenant, to, to keep the law, and man fails. There is but one perfect, faithful keeper of covenants, and that is God. Man breaks them, God keeps them. And when God made his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis, he promised to Abraham countless descendants, descendants so numerous as the stars in the sky that Abraham couldn't even possibly count them. And he promised that all of the earth would be blessed through this line. Through descend, it would be through a descendant of Abraham, ultimately, that blessing would come. And here in Isaiah 42, we're now beginning to connect that promise, that covenant to this servant who is, God says, my covenant for the people and light for the nations. Here is that source of blessing. And so that mention of people and nations and the previous mention of nations and the earth should, should show us that this, this servant, is not just one who brings God's covenant to the Jewish people. It's not just isolated to one ethnic group. This is one who is bringing God's promise of redemption to the world. This servant, as one commentator writes, becomes the vehicle through which the peoples of the earth will establish a covenant relationship with God. What he is saying here and what the, the, the audience listening to Isaiah is, is just beginning to get a sense for is, is this, this one comes and he brings promises of God for the redemption of people to the nations. Now, Isaiah is going to tell us a lot more in the weeks ahead as we move on, especially we get into chapters 51, 52, 53. We're going to understand more about how this covenant can be, how God can do this. But, but what he does give us a hint at here in verse 7 is just some of the effects of this, what this covenant will accomplish when he speaks of sight opening the eyes that are blind, bringing out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This covenant will accomplish sight and freedom. Things that we've seen already. Isaiah's already mentioned some of these promises. You can go back to chapter 35, the promise of the coming of God's glory. And there he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Here in chapter 42, we can start connecting these promises to this servant, to this one whom God says that he will send, Behold, my servant, his coming will free spiritual captives. It will bring light to those who are in darkness. That which is ruined by sin will ultimately be made right. The the curse and all that it has done to creation. Exactly what our brother Bob shared before about Gabriel. Even the consequence of, of the blindness that comes upon him that this witch doctor brings. And who brings healing to that? Who, who brings relief to that? Who brings sight? Even on a very physical level. We're not just talking spiritual here, though that's most important. The most important thing for our brother Gabriel is that he knows Jesus Christ and his sin is forgiven. But this servant reverses the curse of sin. And, and creation is made whole, and it is redeemed by his work. 
It's not just previous promises in Isaiah that say this. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. All right, we have much more to learn about this ideal servant upon whom God's spirit rests. But one other point here that I think we see in these verses is newness, that what what God is doing through him, at least from the, the onlooker perspective, from our level, from, from where our vantage point is, is new. Look at verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And so the sixth element of the servant's description is newness. Now again, that which is new for us is not new for God. This isn't some revelation for him. This is God unfolding his revelation. In fact, his very point here in verses 8 and 9 is to continue to to, to wrap up this sort of courtroom case and say, remember, the idols are worthless. They They couldn't put the past in perspective and help you understand how we got here today. And they certainly can't ordain the future, but I do. And so I can tell you that this will come to pass. This servant will spring forth with these new things, this this bringing of redemption to man. Six descriptions of God's ideal servant, and and they lead us, I'm I'm gonna suggest to you two key lessons from this passage. First one goes back to the court case, and it's it's, again, it's reiterated in verse eight. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's work through this ideal servant, where all of this is leading, is to settle the case once and for all that Yahweh is God. I am the one who saves. I am God alone. The one true God does not merely talk about the future in sort of vague, general terms. Somebody's coming. He's going to help you. It'll all work out. Anybody can say that about the future, can can say those kind of things and and somehow point to something to say, look, see, there's how it happened. This God, Yahweh, is saying, look, this is my servant. I have chosen him, anointed him, and empowered him, and he will do what I say he will do. He will bring justice to the earth, and he will reverse the curse of sin. He will do this, and I am Yahweh, and these idols are worthless. God doesn't even need to ask at this point, can you compare me to idols? Because the answer is, of course not. There's nothing here that they can do. This is, this is the, the, the territory of God alone to say these things. They are worthless carved idols. History will obey God's commands. He will direct history. He will direct the coming of his, of his servant at just the appointed time, Galatians tells us, at just the appointed time in history when God has brought all of the, the conditions together. And he does that, verse 8 says, for his glory. He's doing this to redeem a people for himself, but ultimately for his glory. And that's what leads us right to the second lesson and application of this passage. This isn't isn't simply about God winning the case in court. 
having the verdict decided on his side. God already knows who God is and doesn't need that necessarily to be proven in some way. But what this is meant to do is to say to every onlooker, every spectator in the court, I am God alone, and I alone am worthy of your praise, and I will not give my praise to another. I will not put up with my praise being given to carved images or to whatever idols you are gripping in your heart. And so that's why verses 10 through 12, let me finish with this passage. Isaiah 42, 10 through 12, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voices, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the, uh, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastland. Yahweh is saying, I, I'm about to do something that is amazing, something that for you is, is new, it will spring forth, and it will reverse the curse, and it will rescue the lost. That, that new thing, as, as verse 9 uses that language of a new thing, is to be met with a new song. God's people should respond in praise, in joy, in singing to him. God's people have, have always had reason to praise his power. I mean, we could go back to, to Moses and the Exodus and Moses' song of the Lord giving victory and the horse and rider being awash in the sea and yet God rescuing his people. So God's people have always had reason to, to sing of his power. But this, this servant, this long-awaited one, who has come not just for the Jews and for their release from captivity. It's not just about somebody coming and delivering them from out of exile in Babylon. This is for those who dwell in places. When he says, Kedar, he's talking about the Arabian desert. This is for those who dwell out in those lands that you, you have very little to do with. This is for those who dwell in caves like in places like Petra. This is for all of the earth. This is a redemption that is coming through the servant for which we should sing praise because we have been freed from sin's grip of death. You and I today are no wiser, no inherently purer, no better than the idolaters of Isaiah's day who would throw themselves down to their knees and worship at the altar of a carved, carved idol. You and I, by our nature, are no better than them. Without God's servant, we too would be blind. We too would be in prison. We too would be lost and without hope. But God has sent his servant, and there is hope. Now, I said that that would be the last verse, but there's one other passage. This is probably a good place for us to stop and just scroll to Matthew 12 for just a moment, because this, this quotation from Isaiah comes up in Matthew's gospel. And, and and just in case, at this point, if we're following along like Isaiah's readers, 700 years before Christ, we are, we are still in wonderment at this. Who is this servant? Who is this unnamed one who is coming? Well, you and I have the benefit of the truth of the, the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So Matthew 12, verse 17 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved 
with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Makes Isaiah's prophecy all the more stunning. 700 years prior to the ministry of Jesus Christ, Isaiah is speaking to the Jewish people saying, look, look, my servant. And now Isaiah has slowly unfolded this description of this servant, this new thing. In fact, when we get to Isaiah chapter 43, we're going to find the servant language again applied to Israel. And and, and if you're readers in Isaiah's day, you're going to again go, now wait, this didn't sound like Israel that we just read about in chapter 42. We're going to have to get all the way to chapter 49 before we see the, this new servant, this ideal servant who is still to come. So Isaiah's audience is learning something new and hopeful that God would do. But you and I, with the benefit of the New Testament and being able to look back on the ministry of Jesus Christ, you and I can read Isaiah 42 and know that this description fits one person in all of history, that this description can only apply to one who is chosen and empowered and perfectly faithful and does God's will and brings God's justice and rescues the earth and provides redemption from sin, only one who will stand against all opponents and who will provide peace for those who trust in him, and that is Jesus. As Matthew says, and we know this servant is our Savior, the one who will preach good news to the poor who will proclaim freedom to captives, sight to the blind. Jesus will proclaim hope, he says, to the Gentiles, to all the nations. Jesus is our hope. At the start of this message, I referred back to Isaiah chapter 1. And the the scenario at the beginning of chapter 1 for Isaiah the prophet and the nation of Judah is we've been given a mission We've been called by God to be his light, yet we fail. We fail again and again. And and we're left at the beginning of Isaiah 1 with a, a judgment on Israel's rebellion, this people chosen by God who have failed, who have become a sinful nation and offspring of evildoers and forsaken the very Lord who gave them life. And a little bit later on in Isaiah 1, after declaring that the people had the blood of violent sin on their hands, God gives a series of commands in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Eight eight commands that he gives. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Each of those eight commands is right and true. They encapsulate a right response to a holy God. But I would also suggest to you that, that, that those, those commands, there's a sense in which they can be utterly exasperating to the people. Because you, you could recite these same commands. We, we hear these kinds of things all the time from societal voices that say we should, we should take up the cause of the oppressed and we should seek justice and we should plead the widow's cause and, and we should do this and, and we should remove evil and cease to do evil. And, and we have a society that constantly pleads for this. And there's a sense in which that is utterly exasperating when man seems so incapable of doing this. And, and so Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 Part of the question has to be, how? How are we to be this people? 
How are we to, to, to be a people of clean hands and pure hearts who uphold justice and, and proclaim your goodness? In the very next verse in Isaiah 1, which I would suggest to you is pointing us ahead, Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There's only one way to true transformation. There's only one way to, to changing the heart of marriages, to, to repairing homes, to, to causing societies to, to walk in righteousness. And that, that must begin with the forgiveness of sin. That though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. And, and that means there must be a sacrifice to remove sin. God must act. God must send, dare we say, a servant who would come and who would do what no other man could do, what no other sacrifice could achieve. And that servant must remove sin, must pay the price for that sin, must be the price of that redemption to bring light and the glory of God. And he has done it. God has done it through his one true servant. And that is why at the heart of, of what we do as a, as a church body, the heart of what, what our brother's doing in, in Ethiopia with, with believers there, at the heart of all of that, as, as Bob read from Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because that is the good news of Jesus Christ. The servant has come and there is freedom for captives we can preach. There is sight for the blind. And that is why we have no other alternative, and why would we have an alternative other than to sing a new song and to proclaim his name from the mountaintops? He is a glorious God to whom all praise and honor is due, and he has sent his servant to provide our redemption. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the, the message of the gospel is overflowing with hope that a Savior has come who has done all that Israel and we fail to do. We, we could never be good enough. We are sinners who on our best days still find ourselves wanting to please self, love self, do for self. Ah, but your, your servant has come. And your servant has come to provide a ransom for sinners, that which would cause our sin to be made white as snow, which would give to us a, a right standing before you that we could not earn. Thank you for your servant. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this hopeful message from Isaiah in the midst of a time in which the nation of Judah was, was racing toward darkness. When Manasseh's soon coming rule would would provoke even more idolatry and rebellion. And the punishment would be exile. And the people would wonder if they were abandoned and if there was any hope. Isaiah has set out for them a promise. There is one coming. Look, my servant. Look to him. See him. He is the one. He is the chosen one. He is the covenant to the people. Lord, thank you for... Your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who 
is in a place where they, they are not certain at all about what would happen if their life ended today, this week, if they were to stand before the, the God who is this creator, who has summoned us into his courtroom. They, they don't know what that verdict, what that outcome would be. I pray that today, would you in your glory and grace open their eyes to see Jesus as the one who came and took sin upon himself on the cross so that he might suffer and die in the place of sinners and then rise from the grave victorious to give life and peace and hope. Father, for those who are trusting in Christ, we, we now join together. We get to sing some more. Lord, help us by your Spirit's enabling to sing with, with joy and with gladness. Lord, you know my brothers and sisters here, some have come from difficult circumstances, hard weeks, new challenges, things that, that make the the hope and promises of Isaiah 42 seem so distant. And yet, Lord, as, as Isaiah delivered these 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, th- there, was, there was a sense of anticipation, a, a, a knowledge that this would happen because the sovereign God has said it. And so we come before you with praise this morning, thanking you that The Savior has come and given his life and that he is coming again. The servant will return. And when he does, he will come for his people. And we will joyfully sing and worship at his throne for all eternity. We pray these things in his great name. Amen.